ahead and grab your Bibles, turn to Matthew chapter 2. You should know where it is by now, page 850 in your pew Bibles. Uh, We are wanting to finish our series on the three gifts of the Magi. I am guessing uh, this past week you did not receive gold, frankincense, or myrrh because these are three weird gifts. Uh, We don't give each other these sort of things. And so as we have seen, these gifts are more than just uh, uh, you know, uh, the, the cheap bin at Target. Rather, they symbolize something about who this Christ child is. So with that, if you will, stand with me out of reverence to God's word. We'll read just verse 11 again. Matthew the Evangelist writes under inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother. They fell down and worshipped him. Then opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we gather every week here in 2023, going all the way back to 1962. And we, we always ask for the same thing, believing in your word. We ask that we are transformed by the gospel revealed in your word that points us to Jesus. And without your spirit, that will not happen. Let the world change because of what you accomplish here. And Lord, we ask you would open our hearts, our minds, and our eyes, our ears, our mouth, our hands, and our feet, that we would go in obedience to Christ. We receive, we believe, let us then live your word. And may I decrease so that you can increase. In the name of your son we pray. Amen. May be seated. I am willing to bet that every Christmas and maybe even every New Year's, your family has traditions. Uh, most of us have the same traditions. You, you wake up on Christmas morning. Uh, if you're a parent earlier than what you would like, it's the one day a year you would like to sleep a little extra. It's your day off. Your kids do not. Nevertheless, you get up early. You open presents in your pajamas and whatnot. Maybe you have uh, go see family or whatever it is. We all have like the big traditions. Uh, I'm willing to bet you have small traditions in your family, and they could be a host of, of, of things. For our family, uh, we fix blueberry muffins. I know that sounds weird, but like any other tradition, we just sort of happened into it. Growing up, uh, uh, because of Christmas, you know, mom wasn't going to make us a big breakfast, uh, but then again, she didn't feel like fixing a big lunch. And so right after we opened presents, she said the easiest thing would be to go in and make blueberry muffins. She did that one year, and the next year happened to do it again. Next year, happened to do it again, never crossed her mind that this has become a, a, a pattern. And so we as kids thought, this is our tradition. No, it was just a big accident. So, well, it eventually became one year. We didn't have blueberry muffins. We uh, uh, rioted uh, in, in, in the streets of the McDonald household. And uh, ever since then, like whenever I became a, 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 a husband, I instituted it. When I became a father, I instituted it. doesn't have to make sense. It's our thing. Blueberry muffins, my brother and sister and I, now that we all sort of have our own families, we will text each other, make sure you got the blueberry muffins. Well, in addition to blueberry muffins, after we, 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 we open our presents, uh, I, me personally, I like to go on a long Christmas run. And the reason is because you go downtown Frankfurt, it's beautiful. We, we have a beautiful city um, in, here in Frankfurt. I like to run downtown because it is a ghost town. You can run down the middle of the streets and no one will bother you. Uh, and, and it was nice. This year was rainy. Last year it was freezing. The year before that it was spring. And you just never know what it is that you're going to get. But I love my long run. Did eight miles this year in, 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 in brand new shoes. A wonderful, wonderful thing. But when I came home from my run, I suspect we may be on to another new small tradition. The house smelled pretty. 
And I walk in and I say that the house is smelling pretty. Uh, in fact, I said, it smells like apple cider. That's about as good as you're going to get from me as a man. I don't know what was being fixed. I don't know how it was being fixed. All I know is it smelled like apple cider. My wife corrected me. She informed me, no, it smells like Christmas. Now, I have no idea what that means. I know what it means, but I don't really know what that means. You probably know what that means, don't you, ladies? But I, I didn't really know what it means. Well, once again, what it is we have here is another gift of something that smells pretty. Maybe uh, whenever uh, uh, the, the, the Magi brought the frankincense and myrrh, uh, they brought these gifts for whatever reason, and Mary says, now it smells like Christmas. I don't know if that is the case or not, but we are given yet another gift uh, that it smells at best, but it's not a practical gift for a toddler. I came across this headline from my beloved Babylon Bee that I think summarizes the Magi quite well. Scholars now believe Jesus ignored the Magi's gifts, just played with the boxes they came in. I think that is absolutely true. I guarantee you that. And when, when Jesus was done with the boxes, the cat got involved, I'm guessing. I don't, I don't know. Uh, but Jesus was the son of God. He didn't have cats. So once again, we want to know. That's a funny joke. Once again, we want to know, what, what is the point of the gift? If it's not a practical gift for a toddler, then these gifts have to symbolize something important. We saw with gold, it was a gift fitting for a kin. Frankincense, a, a gift fitting for a priest. And here with myrrh, we see a gift fit for a savior. We'll start here. The purposes and the uses of myrrh, first of all, in the Bible, was used as a spice. Myrrh is an aromatic resin that has many uses throughout world history, particularly Old Testament, ancient Near Eastern history. Although it is less expensive than frankincense that we saw last week, it was nonetheless still valuable. Proving this point is actually kind of easy to do, that myrrh was a common spice and it was a popular spice. In fact, we have a city in the Bible, particularly in the New Testament, named myrrh. You've read it a thousand times. You never knew it was called myrrh because what we get is basically the transliteration of it. We, what we get is the Greek, a word in our English. And in fact, this city plays a prominent role in the book of Revelation. You remember the seven churches of Revelation. Revelation is a circular letter written to these seven churches. The one city goes by Smyrna. You hear it? Smyrna is the Greek word meaning myrrh. So prominent of a spice that an entire city was named after it. Often when we come across myrrh in the Old Testament, we discover it is indeed a valuable spice common with trade and other products. Remember that trade is good for nations, but, but trade often reveals uh, what, are, what are valuable things. After all, you're asking for something to travel from another nation into your nation because you value it so. In fact, the first time we see myrrh show up in the Bible, it is in the context of trade. It is in Genesis 37. You remember the story of Joseph? Joseph, who, who gets stripped of his robe, thrown into a pit, and instead of killing him, which is what the original plan of the brothers was, they decide to sell him as a slave to Ishmaelites, cousins of the Jews, down into Egypt. You remember what the Ishmaelites are carrying? Well, we get this in Genesis 37. A caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh. You see that to the brothers... 
their little brother Joseph was no more valuable to them as what the Ishmaelites were trading. In fact, the next time we see Myrrh mentioned, still has to do with the story of Joseph, is the other end of the story of Joseph, is in Genesis 43. You remember that when the brothers come to, to see Joseph, they don't have Benjamin nor Jacob. And Joseph wants the whole family in Egypt with him where they'll be safe and well-fed. So he sends to Jacob, through his brothers, a list of, of, of items to show his great wealth, influence, and whatnot. Among the, that list was myrrh. It's ironic, isn't it? Joseph was sowed into Egypt with myrrh, and it, it is Joseph who sends myrrh back to the promised land. Sort of irony there. But following uh, later in the story of Solomon, we get the visit of Queen Sheba. And we discover that Solomon has been trading uh, with the nations, and among the things he traded was myrrh. So we, we, I don't have it up there, I guess, but in 1 Kings chapter 10, every one of them brought his present articles of silver and gold. There's reference to gold. Garments, myrrh, spices, horses, and mules. Parallel there in 2 Chronicles chapter 9 says the same thing. So what we see is Solomon trading gold and myrrh. Most significant in the Old Testament is the role that myrrh played in worship. We saw this last week, so we won't belabor the point. Exodus chapter 30, that in the mixture of, of spices along with frankincense that was used to cover the temple or the tabernacle before that, uh, to, to indicate it was holy uh, is myrrh. So you get that again in Exodus 30. You can see it there for yourself. Now, this continues all the way into the New Testament's. We still see myrrh, like in the city of Smyrna, is used as a spice, as an expensive spice, often in the context of trade. We again saw this last week with frankincense, that it shows up in the book of Revelation. In Revelation, you remember that Babylon is foretold to fall, whether Babylon references Rome or some future uh, nation. Uh, I'll let you, you, you decide. But uh, whenever it collapses, the economy goes with it. And what among the things traded in Babylon is gold, frankincense, and myrrh. All three are mentioned uh, if, if you read the whole, whole passage. Here you see frankincense and myrrh mentioned. So clearly it was used as an expensive spice traded among the nations. But it's not just a spice. It was primarily used as a sense. It smelled pretty. It smelled like Christmas, I'm guessing. Without a doubt, this is the most prominent use. It was used for cosmetics and perfume. For example, remember the story of Esther. Esther was a young lady who entered a beauty contest, and she took 12 months to get ready for this thing. Now, fellas, this is where we have to say we have a tendency to complain. Honey, are you ready? I'm going to be late. Well, I'm still putting my face on. Well, I don't know what to tell you about that. She took 12 months for this date. So maybe we don't have as much to complain about. Esther chapter 2, among the uh, perfume she wore, myrrh. Why? Because it was associated with beauty and desire. In fact, so much so that myrrh is often referenced in the context of seduction. Notice the bad seduction by the seductress woman in Proverbs 7. I have perfumed my bed with myrrh. This is the bad lady. This is where Solomon's saying, don't chase after her. Don't be easily seduced by her. And what is it she's using to seduce? A perfume of myrrh. 
However, we see the same use in Song of Solomon. In Proverbs, we see what the seductress does. That's bad. But in Song of Solomon, we see what, uh, what this couple, the groom and the bride do, is they use this perfume, the scent of myrrh, to welcome, to invite their partner into intimacy. So, for example, in Song of Solomon chapter 3, what is that coming up from the wilderness like columns of smoke perfumed with myrrh and frankincense? Song of Solomon chapter 5, his cheeks are like beds of spices, mounds of sweet-smelling herbs. I have no idea what that means. His lips are lilies, dripping liquid myrrh. Still don't know what any of that means, but it sounds really lovely. It sounds like a good country music song back when country music still existed, I'm guessing. Uh, so, so you see then that, that myrrh plays an important role in, 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 as a perfume. And this got me thinking, we still do this today. We still do this today. I'm willing to bet you, you men, you, you remember the first girl you, you sort of fell in love with, right? You, you thought, I got to impress her. What do you do? You go into your dad's uh, drawer and you find the most expensive cologne he has. I, I know you did that. I did it. I still remember the first time I put on aftershave and that scene in Home Alone made complete sense. But I was dating a girl. I had to impress her. I got to smell pretty, right? You got to impress her. Uh, but my advice to you, young men here, if you want to impress a girl, let me give you the cologne you get. It's Adidas or Adidas, as Americans like to say. Uh, let me tell you, it worked for me. Still works for me. If I am in trouble or, or going on a, on a date and I need to uh, get out of the, of the box, I will put on that old Adidas and uh, uh, everything else is just forgotten. That's my version of myrrh. If you don't want Adidas or Adidas, what you could use is you could go on the Amazon and buy you some myrrh. I found it. Uh, I, I spent some precious time looking this up. On Amazon, you can buy a one ounce bottle of cologne. For men, that'll last about 10 years. Um, it cost $22. So there you go. There's a Christmas gift for your, for, for, for your uh, groom, ladies, next year. $22, which at this rate next year would be $48. But nevertheless, uh, you can get you some cologne um, that made of myrrh. Now, what's interesting about this is that God's robe is said to be dripped in myrrh. Psalm 45, your robes are all fragrant with myrrh and aloes and others. And from ivory palaces, string instruments make you glad. It's interesting that, that God's beauty, God's, God's essence is described in a way that is dripping with myrrh. So it's, it's the fulfilling of the senses. What you see is glorious. What you hear is glorious. What you smell is glorious. What you speak is glorious in the presence of God. Isn't that fascinating? And what is it that God's robe is dripped in but myrrh? The point is that for most of the Bible, myrrh was traded as a spice often used uh, or and also used for that of a perfume. And as an expensive spice, it was often used to aid worship. As a perfume, it was associated with love and desire. Being the case, then, why would a group of magi, these wise men, Bring to a toddler myrrh. Well, I think you know why. It is because they see him as a savior. This is, I think, made abundantly clear, especially when we come into the New Testament. In the Old Testament, we get what it is we expect. 
It is a scent. It is a spice. You come in the New Testament and things seem to take a whole new meaning. I found this helpful by Hendrickson in his commentary on Matthew. It says, as to myrrh, in more than a dozen Old Testament passages where the word occurs, it is mentioned in connection with the service of Jehovah in only one instance. We looked at that in Exodus 30. For the rest, it was a perfume used by and in the interest of mortal man to make his life more pleasant, his pain less dreadful, and his burial less repulsive. We've emphasized the scent part of it, but we could add other references as well, particularly here uh, because the perfume was used to cover the stench of a cadaver. And that's what Hendrickson is pointing out there. Now, the New Testament writers pick up on this imagery to enhance our understanding of Jesus's own death and burial. Have you ever noticed when you read through the Gospels, there seems to be this story that keeps popping up. The story is of a woman who takes an expensive uh, perfume uh, and pours it on the Jesus and covers him with it. In fact, you may remember in one instance, the, 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 the woman will, will uh, wipe Jesus' feet off with her hair. Remember the story? In fact, that story is referenced three times, Matthew 26, Mark chapter 14, and John chapter 12. And it's the story that after Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead, they invited him out to dinner, which I would too. I mean, I would probably take him out to dinner, Mexican probably. But nevertheless, they, they take Jesus out, they, they invite him in, and here's Lazarus just raised from the dead. And Lazarus' sister Mary takes an expensive alabaster box, uh, uh, jar of, of perfume. And we're not told what the perfume was made of. We're not given any of those details. All we know, it was an expensive perfume often used to cover the stench of a body. Now, remember what just happened. Lazarus just died and was buried. What you would happen is later the family would come to anoint the body to help with the smell. We know they hadn't done that because when Jesus went to raise Lazarus, remember he had the stone removed? And what does the King James say? People, people said, we don't need to be removing that stone. Why? King James, there is a great stinketh. So we know that, that this perfume hadn't been used on Lazarus. But now that he's alive, they don't need to use it on him anymore. Instead, Mary uses it for Jesus. You remember what the disciples did, and, and, and Judas is the one that gets zeroed in on, is uh, they form a committee, they're Baptists, and they complain. And they complain, and they complain, and complain. And Jesus has to rebuke them, and he says that Mary did, quote, a beautiful thing to me. And we get this in Matthew 26. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. Notice what Jesus has done here. Now, although we don't have the ingredients of this perfume, Jesus connects his anointing of the, of, of the perfume with her anointing him for his burial while he is still alive. Jesus is saying, it isn't Lazarus that's going to die, but I will. She's preparing me for that event. Well, there is another story that is very parallel. This is, it's not the same story, although it has a lot of the same parallels. This is in Luke chapter 7. Jesus is invited by a Pharisee named Simon for dinner. I'm sure they went out to Mexican. 
And while there, a woman who was a known sinner comes to Jesus with another alabaster flask of ointment and begins to anoint Jesus. Again, we're not given the ingredients of this perfume. So we get this in Luke chapter 7. When the Pharisees who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man, they said uh, uh, to himself, the, the Pharisees said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him. She is a sinner. So Judas was saying we need to, we need to, we need to solve poverty. The Pharisee is saying we need to just abandon these sinners completely. They are outside of the camp. Jesus then proceeds to tell a parable, concluding with that this woman is doing something, securing her forgiveness. So we get this in Luke chapter 7. Therefore I tell you, her sins, which are many. He acknowledges this woman is not a good person, like a Pharisee. She's not a good person. However, her many sins are forgiven, for she loved much, in reference to the parable. But he who is forgiven little... Loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. Now, there's so much in that one verse. You could do about 10 sermons right there. Can I just highlight as a footnote there? Those who believe they have been forgiven of little, they will love very little. That is the problem with the church. But we must move on. Whenever we diminish the depth of our sin, we fail to exercise love often in the category of forgiveness. Because we think, well, Jesus didn't have to forgive me of much. But that's a separate sermon we'll save for another time. But notice there, Jesus connects the, his anointing from this sinner with grace. So we have in one instance, the anointing is associated with his burial, thus death. And in the other instance, is associated with forgiveness. And here, we need to put both together. The means of grace is the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus. In the New Testament, both are put together so that we can see this. Now, you're still thinking, what does that have to do with myrrh? It's never been mentioned. It is because myrrh is mentioned in the context of Jesus' crucifixion. Crucifixion was a brutal death. The goal of crucifixion was to keep you alive as long as possible with a maximum amount of pain your body can tolerate. Some would last for days, even weeks, where they would die of exposure and the buzzards would surround them for days. It was a brutal death, a brutal death, and Jesus suffered it. The Gospels do not go into detail, interestingly, uh, regarding Jesus' suffering on the cross. However, we are told that before he was nailed, excruciating pain, he was flogged um, by Pilate, which alone could have killed him. So here you have a man with open wounds all over his body, hanging and nailed to a cross, left there to simply suffer and slowly die. That is excruciating pain. However, to clarify that Jesus did suffer greatly upon the cross, the writers detail for us that Jesus was offered a sort of narcotic to help with the pain. We know this throughout, throughout Roman history, that often they would offer some sort of narcotic to, to help the person prolong their suffering. 
In fact, let me show you just two examples of the Matthew chapter 27. When they came to a place called Golgotha, which means place of skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, and when he tasted it, he would not drink it. So we see already that something has been mixed to help him in his suffering upon the cross. But what exactly is he referencing gall here? Well, what does he have in mind here? Well, this is where we have to go to the parallels in the New Testament. Mark tells us the same exact story, yet he gives us the ingredient used with the wine. Mark chapter 15, when they brought him to the place called Golgotha, it's word for word, isn't it? Clearly a parallel with what we saw in Matthew. They offered him wine mixed with myrrh. You see it? Wine mixed with myrrh, but he did not take it. Now, the text doesn't tell us why he did not drink this narcotic. Now, one may want to reference here that Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane had accepted the will of the Father that he would drink from the cup of suffering. So perhaps in refusing this narcotic of wine and myrrh, he is receiving, he is accepting the full cup of God's wrath on our behalf. Maybe that is why he does it. So we see here, like those anointing passages, myrrh, this perfume, this spice, is associated with Jesus' death. But it is also associated with his burial. So Jesus dies there on, uh, on Good Friday, and he is taken off the cross. His body is wrapped, and you remember he is laid in the tomb. Three days later, early Sunday morning, the women get up at first light's, and they're heading to the tomb. You remember why? They're going to anoint his body with spice, with, with, with perfumes. What was among those perfumes? John chapter 19, we discover Nicodemus also, who earlier had come to Jesus by night, came bringing a mixture of myrrh and aloes, about 75 pounds in weight. Very expensive. We saw something similar a uh, similar weight used in the temple. He was going to pour all of it upon Jesus. Now, you see the connection? Myrrh is associated with Jesus' death, burial, and therefore, I believe, resurrection. But go back to those earlier stories. What is the meaning of anointing in Jesus' body for burial and resurrection? Through his death, forgiveness is secured. The woman anoints Jesus for forgiveness on the basis she is being, he is being anointed for burial. To this day, we receive the forgiveness of God, not by anything that we've done or anything that we could do, but simply because Christ died in our place. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, and three days later, he conquered the grave. And so when the Magi come, bringing this bizarre spice to a toddler who wouldn't know what to do with that, they are announcing to Mary, Joseph, and to us, this Jesus who has been born, he is the eternal king, and he will rule upon David's throne. He is the great high priest who makes intercession for us, and he is therefore Savior who procures for us forgiveness. This is the deep need of humanity. What we need more than anything else is to be cleansed of our sins. 
And the New Testament writers pick up on the imagery of myrrh and says, see, Jesus took your sins upon you, your wickedness upon him, so that we might be free from it. That is the greatest gift Christianity can offer the world. And that is the greatest need the sinner has, much like that woman who comes bearing her spices. I was watching a documentary recently about World War I. The thing about World War I is, is it was a bloody, ugly war where they basically set up trenches and just go into no man's land and try to get this, lose a lot of people in the process, and they're going to return. And it was just, just an just a awful war, particularly, you know, you have Britain on one side, Germany on the others, and of course they're, they're allies. 1914 was a particularly noteworthy year. These battle-hardened soldiers were exhausted, and we know that from their letters and their stories and everything else. You had the Germans on one side, you had the Brits on the other, and usually what, what the nations would do is they would take the winter off. Winter can be terrible in, uh, in Europe, and so they needed to uh, revamp their weapons, they needed to uh, get more soldiers, they needed to do all the things you have to do to fight a war. And so often they would sort of have a sort of truce, but the Britons thought this is our one chance to get an advantage over the Germans. And so they told the soldiers, you're, you're not leaving the trench, you're going to stay there a little longer. And so they ended up going through Christmas. And on Christmas Eve, when the Germans would normally celebrate Christmas, remember the Germans are the ones who gave us Christmas trees and, and uh, uh, decorative lights, and all that comes from the Germans, thanks to Martin Luther and others. And on Christmas Eve, late at night, with guns pointed at each other, a group of Germans started to sing, Oh, or I'm sorry, Silent Night. And they started to sing it in their language. And the tune was, was such that the Brits over here who didn't know German, they recognized the tune. And so when the Germans would finish one verse, the English would pick up with the next verse. Silent night. And before long, what you had was a melody of enemies singing about Christ laid in a manger. A silent night amid war. And then they started singing other carols, and, and, and one by one, men will start to pop their head out, out of the trench to look across, knowing it's a risk of their own life. And the other side will pop their heads out of the, the trench, knowing it's a risk of their own life. And, and they continue to sing about the peace on earth and goodwill towards men. And on Christmas Day, they left the trenches, came across no man's land, and they started to do to, to fellowship with one another. Men who were trying to kill each other just hours before now were shaking hands. And, one, one, uh, and some have, have suggested they were even playing football or what we Americans call soccer. The world's greatest sport, I would add. In unison and fellowship, genuine peace on earth, goodwill towards men. What brought them together? It wasn't politics. Politics is what made them aim at each other. It was an economy. It wasn't international affairs. It wasn't diplomacy. It wasn't feelings. It wasn't academia. It was of a king laid in a manger. It was of a priest hung from a cross. It was of a savior risen from the dead. If we want peace on earth, if we want goodwill towards men, the answer as we enter 2024 has to be Jesus Christ risen from the dead. And let it be that we remember that moving forward.
So I don't know your story. I don't know what brings you here. But, but maybe you're here and you've never truly received in full the forgiveness that Christ offers you. Come to the one who is worthy of myrrh. Maybe you're here and your faith is shaky. You have your doubts and security seems to be far off. I would encourage you again, like the, the, the Mary and the uh, woman with oil, come to Christ knowing that the Savior has come and he offers you salvation, a gift that no one else and nothing else can give. Today is the day if only we would receive it. And let us go into 2024. There are many things that can distract us, many things that can scare us, but let us be the people who worship the one worthy of gold, frankincense, and myrrh, the one in whom the nations come bearing gifts because he is our king, he is our priest, he is our savior. Let's go to our Lord and Savior in prayer. Father, I ask that you would be...